Well, uh, I think it's interesting, uh, and pastors brought it up on a number of occasions. Uh, I really don't know what's going on in the assemblies. Uh, you know, I, I've been in the Assemblies of God movement since I was, you know, sleeping on the bench when I was a kid or under the bench, whatever. Uh, so I've been in this movement all of my life. Uh, I have seen a gradual transition away from some of the fundamental doctrines. I, I still pray for the, the movement. It's a, for you guys that don't know it, it's a fellowship. It's not a denom denomination. It is a fellowship. But still, it's, there's uh, you know, kind of a, a governing structure involved in the Assemblies of God. But I pray that they continue to hold to the, the 16 fundamentals of faith. I've been, just to kind of put a plug in for Sunday school, uh, I've been teaching the 16 fundamentals of faith and I kind of re, I kind of re go, I go back around to that every now and then. Uh, I always think about that past scripture, and Peter was talking to different ones. He says, "Go back and, and relearn or or revisit the basics." Sometimes we, you know, we sometimes we get caught up in, you know, the, the revelations and all the other things. But just go back to the basics again. So tonight, and this is another thing I've talked to Pastor about on a number of occasions. There's certain things that even within the assemblies of God and in the church world as a whole, it seems like they've gotten away from. They don't talk about certain things anymore, like the blood, you know. Um, you, don't, you don't hear uh, them talking about the blood of Jesus. Some cases, they don't even hardly talk about Jesus. It's just kind of God in general. Uh, and, I, and I think about that passage of Scripture in Timothy. It says, you know, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. And, and I don't, you know, and I know this body doesn't want to, I don't want to be a part of that. I want to be a part of the true church Amen. of God so that I not only enjoy the blessings down here of the fellowship that I have with him, but again, you know, not to escape hell, but surely to gain heaven uh, from that. The other thing that they don't really talk about a whole lot, and there's been, it's not controversial, but some of the end-time events, and that's one of the things I want to talk about tonight. Uh, there's something called the blessed hope, the rapture of the church. There's certain denominations you guys may or may not know that don't even believe in the rapture of the church. They don't believe in the millennial reign of Christ, or they think it's some, they spiritualize it. They don't believe in our earthly, or that Jesus is going to come back and set up an earthly dominion on this earth, which I absolutely do. I'm a literalist. I believe, I believe the Bible needs to be taken literally, except in those places where it explicitly is not to be taken literally, you know. And so all of that stuff in the book of Revelation that looks kind of, that sounds kind of weird, uh, I think a lot of that stuff is truly going to come to pass, even as it's stated with all the, the strangeness associated with it. They kind of start off, I wanted to, now there's so I've always been, I guess for a long time, I've been a student of prophecy. I know there's some that say, you know, don't get all caught up in the, the prophetic, uh, you know, because it distracts away from, I personally don't believe that. I don't know, by one count, over a quarter, about 27% of the Bible is prophetic. I mean, how in the world... If you read the Bible and you study the Bible, are you going to get away 
from the prophetic. Because again, it, it, it amounts to a 20, over a quarter of the Bible. What, what that amounts to is one in every four verses in the Bible is prophetic. Another aspect of that is, and this is what I tell people all the time, if you're, there, there's a, a password that says that we should always be ready to give a reason for the hope that is within us. I tell people all the time, I, yeah, the just live by faith and we live by faith in God. But God has given us proof after proof after proof after proof after proof that he is who he says he is. And we can rely on what's written in the book. I mean, absolutely 100%. We can literally stake our life on it. And I have. So, about half of the prophetic has been fulfilled already. And that's the other thing about it. There's no other book, there's no other religion that has the emphasis on prophecy that the Bible does. And there is absolutely no other book, Nostradamus included, where the, the, the prophecy or the accuracy, the accuracy of fulfillment of the prophecies has come to pass as it has in the Bible. There's no other book out there. If you don't want any other proof that the Bible is real, just look at the prophecies. Much of the prophetic that has already been fulfilled pointed to Christ, and we know about that. I mean, and it's, it's scattered. It's not just limited to the prophetic books in the Bible. It's, it's scattered throughout the Bible as a whole. So just to kind of, I'm going to recap before I get into the lesson really good. Some of the fulfilled pro prophecies that we know about is the first coming of Christ was prophesied. That was actually started in the book of Deuteronomy. One of the first ones uh, about the Messiah was in the book of Genesis where it says, you know, when God was talking to Adam and Eve, it says, you know, uh, uh, you, you shall, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That was the first basically pointing to the Messiah, that first prophetic scripture there in the book of Genesis. Prophecies regarding individual people like we know about the doom of Jezebel was, was prophesied. Some of the judgments that came on Israel was prophesied before they ever occurred. There was one that was talking about how that, you know, when King Cyrus came, he was actually mentioned by name in the Bible. Year, hundreds of years before he ever showed up on the scene. Daniel's prophecies, the whole book of Daniel for the most part, Revelation we know about are prophetic some of the ones that are to be fulfilled, and that's what we're going to get into tonight to some degree, is the second coming of Christ, the rapture of the church, the millennial reign of Christ, the marriage supper of the Lamb, the tribulation period. All of those things are yet to be fulfilled. But what I want to talk about tonight, and I've, the other thing that I've been a student of is a study of the types. I've actually got a book, uh, kind of got into it. It's, uh, I forget what preacher... Uh, I want to say it was Spurgeon or somebody uh, of his caliber, but there was a lady that did the teaching, and she's got a book called Ada Habersham. Her name is Ada Habersham. And if you ever get a chance to get the book, it's called A Study of the Types. It's a very incredibly interesting book, but she goes in-depth on the types. And what types are is basically the types and shadows, pictures of Christ in the Bible. Pastors talked about it on occasion where you see Joseph was a type of Christ, Moses was a type of Christ, and you see similarities in what they went through and how it compares to Christ. And so I'm, I've been a student of that as well. 
But what I want to talk about tonight is I want to talk about the rapture of the church, the, rap, the, the blessed hope, as it's written in the 16 Fundamentals of Faith. I'll just tell you straight up front, like I said earlier, there's certain whole denominations that don't even believe there's going to be a rapture of the church. Uh, they believe the second coming of the rapture are the same thing. But in Scripture, you, if you study Scripture, there's no way that can be. And, this, and the Scripture, you guys are all familiar with. I'll read it to you real quick. It's in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 18. It says, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Uh, now, I'll tell you, there's some, again, there's some that don't believe this, and then another aspect of this, and I don't want to confuse the issue, but uh, I I'm a pre-tribulation rapture, Okay. Uh, I believe with all my heart that, well, in the book of Matthew 24, it says we, were, we weren't appointed unto wrath. You can look at passages in the Bible where God never subjected his people. He saved them through it, just like Noah uh, and the flood. He, he was saved through it. I was, that's, a, that's an incredible picture of the rapture of the church right there because it says, Right there in that passage in Genesis says, Enoch walked with God and was not, for God took him. But then at the same time, Noah and his family went through it, but they were protected in the ark. That is a picture of what's going to happen in the end. I heard a preacher say the other day, if you want to know what's going to happen at the end, study the book of Genesis. And the way, the, the analogy there is, Enoch walked with God, the church walks with God, and he was not. He was taken to be with God before judgment was poured out on the earth. Noah and his family are a type of Israel, which it talks about in the book of Revelation, how that Israel is going to be protected. There's a rim that's going to be protected during the tribulation period so that the Antichrist can't wipe them out. So there's going to be a rim that's going to be protected, but they're going to come through judgment. Just, just as Noah and his family came through judgment and were saved at the end. So again, that's a picture to me of the rapture of the church and the, and the Israel coming through the tribulation period. So, and there's, there's other types in the Bible, but the analogy or the correlation that I wanted to really emphasize tonight, I think it's just a beautiful picture of the rapture of the church. And a lot of times when we read through passages of Scripture, we don't make, sometimes we don't make the connections. And I was talking earlier to our brother over here. You know, I, I feel like I'm, we live in a time where we can stand on the shoulder, shoulders of scholars that have dedicated their life to digging those precious nuggets out of Scripture. They are literally, literally at our fingertips. Uh, I've got a Bible app called Olive Tree, and I've got my concordance associated with it. I've got study Bibles associated with it. You know, with the touch of my finger, I've got Bible history. I've got Josephus. I can look. It's, 
I used to, when I studied, I used to have to spread out books all over the countertop and reference back and forth through them, but it's at our fingertips now, which is just wonderful that you can have that now. Save so much time, but at the same time, you have the, you, you have the, uh, the benefit of those literal years and years of study right at our fingertips. But what I wanted to talk about, like I said, what I wanted to talk about tonight was a comparison between the Galilean wedding and the rapture of the church. If you've ever studied it or read about this, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty fascinating. And, and it has to do with the Galilean wedding and the traditions that they followed at the time of Christ. Now, of course, modern Jewish weddings don't follow the same form, but the ancient Jewish weddings did. And there's references that Jesus made when he was talking to his disciples that we're very familiar with, but when it's in the context of the Galilean wedding, it makes a lot more sense. So I wanted to go through, and I'm going to, use, I'm going to tell you the scriptures associated with it and what the correlation is. And again, I think it's just fascinating. Number one, and we've heard about this, the selection of the bride was made by the Father. Now there's a passage of scripture, and I always like to not really pick at people about this, but probably one of the most misquoted passages of scripture that I hear, and it's not a huge detriment, but it's misquote. It says, no man comes to the Father except, and that most people say, except the Spirit draw him. That's not right. It's not in the Bible. I've had, I had a guy argue with me one day. He says, that's not right. I've heard that all my life. I said, I don't care. It's not in there. Look it up. The scripture actually says, no man can come to me except the Father, except the Father, which, which has sent, which hath sent me, draw him, and I will raise him up to the last day. So, when we come to God, when we are called, now we're predestined, we're pre predestined by the foreknowledge of God. You're not predestined by not having a choice. We're predestined by the foreknowledge of God. God knows who's going to be saved and who's not going to be saved. I mean, that doesn't take away my free will. But the Father is the one who draws. Now, does he use the Spirit to do that? Yes. You know, all the action on the earth is executed through the Spirit. We know that for a fact. Because when Jesus left, he said, I'm going to send you another comforter. He's going to be the one that actually is, is here on the earth, actually moving among us. And he's going to be here, you know, forever. So that's the first thing. So the father is the one that makes the determination or calls the bride. There is, there's a, a, almost like a contract that is grown up in, in the Hebrews called the ketubah or the agreement. And there's an agreement that's, that's drawn up after that, that bride is selected. Then the groom-to-be or the groom-to-be basically goes to and makes a proposal you know, proposal of marriage to the, the one that has been selected. Part of that proposal includes a taking of a cup of wine for her to basically partake of and signifying that she is in agreement to marry. So that is the first, the first part of that. And there's two stages associated with that. So what happens is, the, the, the groom-to-be goes to the bride. 
He presents her with a proposal and basically offers her the cup to drink. She can accept it or reject it. She has that choice, even as we have the choice right now to reject or accept Christ. If she accepts that, it is, it is a legal binding agreement at that point, even though the marriage has not been consummated and will not be for some period of time. Interesting part of that is that at that point of agreement, I get excited about some of this stuff because at the point of agreement, when she takes that cup, at that time, she has access to all the rights and privileges of that husband. When we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, at that moment, we get all the rights and privileges of Jesus Christ. It says we are heirs of God, joint heirs with Jesus Christ. We've got to remember that. We've got to get that down in our spirit and understand who we are in Christ at that point. Now, as we move forward, and this is this is what Jesus, this is the scripture associated with that. When Jesus instituted the the communion, this is in Matthew 26, 27 through 29. It says he took the cup, he gave thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink all of it, for this is my blood of the new New Testament which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of the vine, of the fruit of the vine, until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So he instituted the communion at that point. They drank the cup with Jesus. They were covenanted with Christ, the disciples were at that point, whenever they, when they took the blood, when they took the, the communion as the blood of Christ. Now, the ketubah, or that agreement, comes in two parts, like I'd said before. The last part of that agreement, where the wine is taken again, even as Jesus said, I will not drink the cup again until I come into my kingdom. That occurs at the marriage supper of the Lamb, which we'll get to in just a little bit. Jesus said, uh, and well, I'll just read it in Mark 14, 24 through 25, which is the... Uh, kind of a re recap of that same verse. It says, He said unto them, This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many. And verily I say unto you, I'll drink no more of the fruit of the vine until that day come that I drink it in the kingdom of God. So, so that is, that's a future event. That's something that will occur later on. Even as, okay, going back to the bride, she received the cup from the groom. She accepted the proposal. They were engaged. She goes back to her house. She still lives in our house. You know, we're, we're sojourners, you know, in this land down here. We haven't arrived yet. We're not in heaven. We're not in constant communion with the Lord Jesus Christ yet. We will be. We are waiting for that event to occur. Well, like I said before, the, the bride had the option to refuse that, but the engagement is legal even though it's, it hasn't been consummated. Now, the, there's a price associated with that proposal. Uh, you guys may have heard this. It used to be pretty common practice, but a dowry was presented 
as payment for the bride. Uh, it's still a custom in some countries, I believe, and it used to be that, you know, whenever you ask somebody to ask a, a woman to marry, then you would give the family basically a gift. Well, this was, this was actually a part of the Jewish tradition, the Galilean tradition as well. The price to be paid was to be reflective of the wealth and the stature of the father. Well, there's no higher price than the blood of Jesus that was paid to purchase us. In 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, it says, What know you not? Your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. I think sometimes we forget whose we are. We are not our own. We don't have the right. I heard, heard a man say it. Matter of fact, that man is in here tonight. And just to give Sam credit, it's been years and years ago, but it's something that Sam said in a Sunday school class again could be 20 years ago and he brought up this pastor scripture and it has just stuck with me ever since he said we don't have the right to be offended we don't have the right to ourselves. we don't have the right over anything in ourselves. we've been bought we are bond servants of Jesus Christ and we need to keep that in mind as Christians as we walk he says we're told to prefer one another anyway but again, Sam, thanks. That's that little nugget I've took back that you've, you've planted in me, and I, I thank you for that. In 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, it says, For as much as we know that we were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received you by the tradition of your fathers, but we have been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ, as of the lamb without blemish and without spot. So having been bought with the price, the bride then goes back, like I said, to her father's house to stay with her, but she keeps herself, again, okay, let's think about this. That bride keeps herself for that groom until that day when they are joined together. By the same token, we have a responsibility as Christians to keep ourselves. So we are journey, we journey through this world. We're, not, we're in the world, but not of the world. And we're to keep ourselves separate. As a matter of fact, it says one place, it says, you know, come out from among them, be ye separate. You know, touch not the unclean thing. We need to keep ourselves separate from the world. as much. We're in it, but we're not of it. So the bride has that responsibility as she waits. Now, and we've heard this, this next passage before too. Then the groom, what he did was he went back. He went back to his father's house. And he, he, would, he was usually predetermined. Uh, but... The son could either add on to the father's house or he could actually build a separate place on the father's property as his own. 
There's a passage of scripture that we know about in John 14, 1 through 3. It says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, you believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Again, that's a promise directly from Jesus Christ himself, saying that if I go away, I'm going to prepare that place for you. And when it's prepared, I'm going to come back and I'm going to get you. Even as they did, and the, as that groom went away, he prepared that, that place for that bride. Now, as it got closer to the time, and most of the time, the bride would, would have an idea of when that groom was going to come back. But they didn't know the day or the hour. Does that sound familiar? There's no man knows the day or the hour. But she wouldn't have an idea. And we can discern the signs of the time or what's going on right now in this crazy world that we're living in. We got to know that it's not going to be too long before the Lord comes back to get his church. But as that approached, there was something that was called a mikvah. As a matter of fact, when me and Susan visited over in in Israel, we, we saw an, what they call ancient mikvah, which is basically, it looks like a, looks kind of like a big hot tub, even though it's not a, it's just a big pool of water. But what the bride would do, as it got close to that time, she would ceremonially go into that mikvah and cleanse herself and prepare herself through cleansing for when that groom came to get her. By the same token, there's two ordinances that we have in the church instituted by Jesus Christ himself. We already talked about the Holy Communion. It says, do this in remembrance of me until I come. So we partake of the Holy Communion. And it also says for us to be baptized in water. Okay? So there's another comparison. And then what would happen is one day, I guess, after everything was prepared and and that groom, I'm sure, once he got everything finished and the house is done and, you know, the last bit of paint got splashed on the wall, you know, got all the furniture arranged like it's supposed to be, I'm sure he probably was, well, I'm, he's ready, but he can't do anything. In the Jewish tradition, it was that father that made the determination and so one day he would look over at that son and says, boy, it's time. Amen. We know Matthew 24, 36 says, but of that day and hour knoweth no man, not even the angels of heaven, but my father only. Amen. So once that was done, what the groom would do, he would get together his wedding party. And most of the time they said it would happen at night. Y'all remember the, uh, the parable of the, the wise virgins, the ten virgins, the wise and the foolish, that had their lamps trimmed and the wise had the extra oil and the foolish didn't have extra oil. But they were awaiting for the call of the bridegroom, you know, that the wedding was about to commence. And so what would happen is the friend of the groom 
usually what we would call today the best man, would go out and ahead of the wedding party, and he would basically pronounce, announce that the, the groom was moving forward, that it was getting ready to, it was getting ready to happen. The wedding was getting ready to take place. I thought, I, I hadn't read this, but this brother over here told me, he says, that they actually went with a, like a carry-all, and they would have that carry-all actually supported like a chair, supported by poles or something, I guess, and the bride would actually enter into that once that she arrived, and they would carry her back. Does that sound familiar? We're going to be carried back, carried back to the throne room. So what would happen then, or what happens then is, once they arrive at the, at the wedding, where the wedding ceremony is going to take place, this is, uh, seems, you know, this would seem to me a little, to be a little bit embarrassing, but I think it's funny that, I mean, Jesus actually references it here in John three twenty nine. says, He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice, and there's joy that is, therefore is fulfilled. What happens is that there's a, there's a short ceremony at the beginning, and then the groom takes his bride into the chamber, and the bridegroom's friend stands outside of the chamber, they consummate the marriage, and then, like it says here, it says, when he heareth him, then, then they rejoice. I say, okay, now that would be embarrassing to me. You know, I just wouldn't, <laughs> I don't want nobody standing outside listening. <laughs> anyway, but that's what happens. Then what happens after that is, uh, after the, you know, basically there's a complete fulfillment of, of the marriage. It is sealed at that point. At that point, the second part of the ketubah takes place. During that ceremony, remember, talk about the wine at the beginning that basically initially sealed the agreement where the bride agreed to be the, the bride of the groom. At the wedding ceremony itself, the second cup is offered, and then that is a completion, because again, that's a two-part uh, step in the process. Just like I said before, Jesus said, I will not drink of the vine until I drink of it in the new kingdom. So, how does that compare? I'm going to read Thessalonians 4, 16, 18. It says, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven, with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God and the dead in Christ, shall rise first, and then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Like I said at the beginning, we are not appointed unto wrath. The church is like Enoch. It, the true church is walking with God and fellowshipping with God. We're going to be taken out before the tribulation starts. Just as it says here, the Lord's going to descend. We're going to go up and meet him. The second coming is where he comes down. His feet touches the earth and it splits open there on, uh, in Jerusalem. 
Well, we're going to go up and meet him in the air. And, and we're going to be at the, at the marriage supper of the Lamb. We're going to base the final part of that union with him. Because what did it say? And, and so shall we ever be with him. We're not going to be departed from him once we're joined to him. At all. We are going to be in constant fellowship with him from that point forward. What that started was, though, once that, that union was completed and that cup was drunk, drunk by the, the bride and that was fully a consummated legal union, then the celebration started. Well, guess how long that celebration lasted? A week. And you say, well, you know, what does that, what does a week have to do with anything? Well, there's correlations in the Bible where a week for a year, a week for a year, okay? The tribulation period is known as Daniel's 70th week, okay? 69 of those weeks have been fulfilled. There's still one week left, and that's a whole other study all by itself. And it's very, I don't say it's very involved, but it's interesting. So we know, okay, so we know the tribulation period is going to last for seven years. That's outlined very specifically in the book. So what's going to be happening here on earth is the tribulation period. What's going to be happening in heaven is the marriage supper of the Lamb for seven years during that seven-year period. Because we know at the end of that seven-year period, Jesus is going to come back, and he's basically going to battle of Armageddon and... Satan's enemy, the, Satan's going to be destroyed. Is not totally destroyed, but the enemies of God are going to be destroyed at that point in the battle of Armageddon. So, what we need to, I guess what we need to understand about this, and, and again, what, what I think is so fascinating about this comparison is here Jesus outlined through a series of of scriptures drawn a correlation with the ancient wedding. And the people that were there at that time, the Gal they were fully aware because they knew the tradition of the Galilean wedding. So they were aware that uh, of the relationship between the, the wedding and what Jesus was telling them. Now, again, there's some people that don't. Uh, I'll just tell you, there's a, I've heard some people say, well, the book, the word rapture is not in the Bible. That's true. Uh, there's a, it's, if you read it up, it's translated as caught up. Um, I thought it was interesting that same Greek word is also used. You're familiar with that passage of scripture in the book of Acts. Remember Philip was translated. There is, it, the, the same Greek word is translated, is translated as translated and caught up in the book of Thessalonians, but it's the same Greek word. And it basically says to be snatched up or snatched away, caught up, to be moved from one place to the other. Even as Philip was moved, remember he met with the eunuch who was traveling along the road. God actually took him from one place and put him in another place. It's the same Greek word. So it wouldn't make sense that the rapture and the second coming would be the same thing because Jesus is coming back to the earth, the second coming. But yet, the rapture talks about being caught up to meet him in the air before he gets here. Matter of fact, whenever, when Jesus left, 
Remember, they were all standing around gazing, looking up into heaven. And the angels came down and says, why are you standing here looking into heaven? The same Jesus that you've seen go away is going to come again in like manner, you know, even as you see him go away. So we're going we're gonna to be caught up to meet with him uh, during that period of time. So now, again, there's, I've, I've done quite a bit of study on the, on the rapture of the church. Um, it wasn't uh, some of the detractors from it have spiritualized scripture uh, and again I think it is just absolutely critical for each and every believer when you read scripture you need to take it and interpret it literally where it can be interpreted literally but there's some that have said that you know, it's, it's not mentioned explicitly in the Bible, that you can't really rely on that. But if you go back and study some of the early church writings, and I've, I've looked through some of those, they reference this catching away in those ancient writings. So it was generally understood by early church fathers all the way back. So again, if you get into a, a, a there's a, like I said, there's a, a passage of scripture that says that we're to be ready to give an answer for the hope that's within us. And again, I like to, I like to have, let's say, both barrels loaded whenever. Yeah, I like to be ready. I don't pretend to have all the answers, uh, but I know who does. So I know I finished up a little early. I, I, I'm, I'm kind of an interactive type guy anyway, so if anybody's got any questions about any of this, feel free before I close the service. Nobody saying anything. Where? Um, yeah. What, uh, what was your source material for the uh, Galilee? Uh, actually, I'd have to go back and look that. I can send it to you. I'll have to send it to you. Okay. Yeah. Actually, it, like I said, I had to send it to you. It was a. There's several prophetic websites out there. Um, one of the ones that we referenced at times, and this is not where I got them, was Rapture Ready is one of them. It's got a lot of good information. Now, I'll tell you this. I always put a qualifier on some of this. Uh, I read a lot of different material, but you remember the Bereans in the Bible, in the book of Acts? It says, and they searched the scriptures to be make sure it was so... You have to, in every, matter of fact, I heard, I heard David Wilkerson say this one time. He said, I don't care who is talking. If it don't line up with the book, you throw it out. Matter of fact, it says, prove all things and hold fast to that which is good. We've got to prove everything that everybody says. It's got to line up with the book or you throw it away. Now, I'll tell you this. I have a tendency, you know, this is not just... You know, this is just me. I have a tendency, if I'm listening to somebody and they're off on several points that are non-scriptural, I don't listen to them no more. You know, there's some people that I know have an established reputation that are solid and I have full confidence in them, but there's others. And, and I'll try different ones at times, different, different speakers and different teachers. Uh, but I'll just tell you, when they start... If they're saying something that doesn't line up with the book, I'm done. So, anybody else?
Okay, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let y'all go. I'll go ahead and close some prayer real quick. Father, Lord, I thank you so much for all your blessings to us. Lord, I just ask that you, you just let this teaching, to, that your word, again, would just, just become embedded into our hearts, our minds, and our spirits. Lord, I ask you to be with each and every person that's here. Go with us. Keep us safe. Protect us. And again, Father, I lift up Pastor and Heather and Brandon. Continue to be with them. Keep them safe. Lord, let your, Lord, you said that you would just let your angels encamp around them. Lord, and keep them safe right now in the name of Jesus. I'm going to give you all the praise in Jesus' precious name. Amen.